Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello all, wherever you are listening to the Market Pulse podcast, thank you for tuning in this week. There's plenty to get through this week. There was the US $1.9 trillion rescue package, which formally passed Congress during the week, so we'll touch on that. We'll also just, I guess, take that point to do a check-in on what the actual condition is of America's economy right now. We'll, we'll look at a few indicators, that is. So sort of job numbers, the savings rate, uh, so unemployment at the moment, because it's been a little while. Uh, here at home, it was quite a good week for the travel stocks in our market, as you might rightly imagine, as the Australian government announced a spending package to help incentivize domestic travel and also get some people into parts of Australia that are very reliant on the tourism gig as well. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And we're going to do a little bit of a stock feature for this episode. It's been a while since we've talked to just one stock in particular, just to give a little back background on what they do, where they where they come from, who they are, and what makes them interesting. We've done a few of those, some of those companies in the past, like Pushpay, uh, Whisper, this week, we're going to look at SelfWealth, and that's an online stockbroking and investment platform itself. So people use it to actually buy stocks and invest in, in the market. The company is listed under ASX ticker code SWF. And I thought it might be good to touch on, I guess, their success over the past 12 months, as well as some of their more recent success this year as well. I'd say broadly the last 12 months, but also the past few months has been this big spike in popularity of trading and investing in shares and they've also been a big beneficiary of that. Well, let's not waste any more time. We're going to jump straight into it. So you are listening to the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion Gribben and this is episode 49, the Half Price Edition. Well, let's take the pulse on how the markets performed during the week. And at least from an overall perspective, the ASX 200 did pretty similar things to what it did last week, actually. The ASX 200 was up 0.8%. From memory, last week was up 0.6%. So pretty similar. Over in the US, the S&P 500 was up 2.6% this week. And the NASDAQ up uh, 3% actually this week. It sort of tapered off at the end there, but still up 3% for the week. Now, like I said at the top of the show, we're going to talk about a few things, but let's talk big, big picture stuff and start with probably the biggest news from a US markets perspective this week, and that was the formal passing of Biden's rescue package in the Senate. It's officially called the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 and officially signed into law on March 11. The S&P 500 itself had a little notable bump that day when the law came into effect, although we sort of mostly knew by that time, well, we did know at that time uh, what was going to be in it at that stage. So I want to quickly touch on that very topic. So what is in this? Um, throwing around big numbers like 1.9 trillion is all well and good, but let's break it up a, a bit to understand how it's being used as it is the first piece of legislation being passed under the new administration and also the first piece of legislation 
for relief to the US economy from the impact of COVID-19 since the Trump administration stimulus bill, which was passed and signed into law right before the new year, so right around the end of December 2020. So what's in this one? Easier to start at the individual level because that is kind of one of the more important things. Last episode, we spoke about those stimulus checks of $1,400 going to individuals. I had a little bit of a rant from a political optics point of view, considering that the Democratic Party ran on a platform of $2,000 checks, and then they decided to lower it after after they ran the Senate race in Georgia on that $2,000 check uh, messaging, and they lowered it to $1,400 because that Trump December bill I just mentioned already gave out $600 to individuals. So they therefore said, oh, well, we'll take it down to $1,400 because then that in total makes it $2,000. But anyway, I won't go down a rabbit hole again. That's just me playing make-believe political advisor. But the $14 checks I mentioned were definitely included in this bill that passed. Now, that doesn't mean it goes to everyone. The specifics are that these payments of $1,400 go to individuals making less than $75,000 annually and married couples making under $150,000 collectively. So there's also a $1,400 on top of that per dependent in the household. Now, for those earning over $75,000, there is a, there's like a small buffer range where you still receive something if your income sits between $75,000 and $80,000. But once your individual income comes in at over $80,000 or for married couples over $160,000, then it is nothing, nada, no stimmy check for you. The other boost, well, this one's actually not really a boost, but it's more of a continuation of something happening already. And that is the federal unemployment program is being extended through to September to include the extra $300 a week top up on that unemployed benefits from, from a federal level. Now that $300 top up was actually in, was part of that Trump December bill. So it hasn't actually changed there. It's more that it's just pushed it down further in the year. There was talk of it increasing up to $400, but it has stayed at $300. And so that uh, that should, that well, at this, at this stage, at this stage, it is being extended through to uh, early September. Another one which I didn't really highlight as something important last episode, but in reflection during the week and also after digesting more information on this particular entry over the past few days, I can see how important this will be for families, working families, but also from a wider perspective, just the US economy, and that is this increase to the child tax credit. Now, the CTC child tax credit is something already in place uh, at the moment in the country. It's been around for a few years, but it's effectively a credit for taxpayers for children that they have under the age of 17. So currently that credit sits at about 2000 well, it sits exactly $2,000. And it just means that it can act as an offset to tax owed to the government based on the number of under 17-year-old children in your care. And it can work not just as an offset. It can also, if say if it's actually higher, that credit higher than the actual tax owed, it could come back to you in the form of a paid refund credit. Now, in the new package passed this week, that tax credit is actually being increased to $3,600 for children between 0 and 5 or $3,000 for children between 6 and 17. So notice it's not just raised across the board. It's also boosted for those families with much younger children. So newborns up to 5-year-olds get an even bigger boost. So that's a nice little touch to it, I think, in my opinion. 
The reason I highlight this one is apart from the general impact this can have on families and their spending ability, but just in terms of economic impact, which has been interesting to read, there's these a lot of estimates and studies about the role this will play in terms of or the impact it can have on overall poverty in America and childhood poverty. There's a fair bit of material out this week on this very topic, but a neat little summary here provided from Business Insider Australia by Juliana Kaplan. Quote, a study out of the Centre on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University found that the package could nearly halve child poverty and would more than halve the rate for black and Hispanic children. Broadly, that study projects that the annual poverty rate would fall from 12.3% to 8.2%, meaning it would drop by a third. So that's the overall, overall annual poverty rate. Meanwhile, a separate study from the Urban Institute finds that the plan would cut poverty by over a third, so pretty similar findings to the Columbia University one there. Their study projects annual poverty rate would shrink from 13.7% to 8.7%. In actual figures, that's 16 million fewer Americans living in poverty in 2021. So that's some big numbers there in terms of impact. I'm going to quickly move through some of the other parts of this bill. There's a total of $350 billion that goes to state and local aid. So that's funding directly to state governments, local governments and tribes. There's a $178 billion provision in this that goes directly to helping to reopen schools, which seems to be something that will um, happen relatively soon, at least I think so. And uh, one of the other big pieces to this was $176 billion that's going to healthcare and vaccination rollout efforts. And one of the pieces to this is cover for people who lost their health insurance due to unemployment from the pandemic. Obviously, those people are at risk of losing their health care as well because they've lost their job. This will cover their premiums for their health care for those unemployed people, which is good as you don't want people who were laid off also losing health care in the middle of a health crisis. So that's a little bit about what's in that pandemic relief package. So let's touch on just the overall health of the US economy, their employment market, spending and savings, and have a look at what's going on there right now because that's what this package is at the very least attempting to address. So let's start with unemployment. And this kind of ties back to my comments in the previous podcast where I expressed some skepticism that inflation would be returning any kind of meaningful, sustained way. And those comments were more focused at Australia, but I do extend that skepticism to the US. Actually, in fact, I am even more confident with what I said when it comes to the US in that it won't happen anytime soon, um, sustained, meaningful inflation, that is. And part of that is due to their unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate is currently sitting at 6.2% in the US. It doesn't sound that bad, all things considered, as... At its worst, it spiked as high as 14.8% in April last year. However, the unemployment rate had been sitting pretty steady around the 3.5% mark prior to the pandemic. So there's still a pretty significant difference between that point and where it is now at 6.2%. And you can see this clearly when you step back and just count the number of employed persons in the US right now. So the latest February 2021 figures show it at just a touch over 150 million people. Well, 150,239,000 to be precise. And that has recovered significantly. So don't get me wrong. It was, at its worst, it was around 134 million. But prior to the pandemic, the number of employed people was 
steadily creeping up and was sitting around 158 to 159 million people. And that's about an 8 to 9 million difference between now and where it is at the moment. And so this issue is that the overall employed persons haven't or it has not recovered back to that number it was before. In fact, if you go and look at the graph of these figures, it's not actually gaining those numbers back quickly anymore. The, the last few months have they've gone up slightly, but it's been relatively flat. So it's, it's slowed down significantly on that recovery. So that's concerning. It kind of speaks to the idea we discussed last year around permanent job loss and permanent unemployment. You know, if those jobs can't be recovered... You know, at what point are they just millions of people, which is kind of like a statistic on the screen when you're looking at it. But, you know, if you think about it, millions of real people that have permanently lost their source of income, it's pretty crazy. And whilst I acknowledge some good things in this package passed by Congress this week, and there were good things here and there, and there was also some good parts to the Trump packages that were passed under his time overseeing the response, the fact is that there are some pretty deep wounds in the economy there. And these are good bandages, but they are only bandages. And I really believe that there's going to be a lot of permanent damage after all of this, well, there is already. And there'll be parts of the economy that just take years and years and years to get back to where they were before all this, if ever. One more thing though, and this is something that skews that unemployment statistic and why it's also important not to just look at unemployment rates, and that is the participation rate in the US. And recall that that is the proportion of a population either employed or looking for a job. Sorry, and that is the adult working age population. Now, the participation rate, if you go back really far, it actually never really truly recovered from the GFC. It dropped from around 66% mark of that working age population. So that was the participation rate at that time. So and participation rate meaning you're either employed or you're looking for a job. Now that tracked downward for many years following the GFC. And it hit a point though where it started to trend back upwards over the last few years. And that was almost at 63.5% right before the pandemic hit in 2020. And then it dropped really hard to 60% and then has bounced back up and recovered slightly but it's kind of basically been stagnant at around 61.5% since then. So it was at 63.3% right before the pandemic. It drops to as low as 60.2% and it's now at 61.4%. And that's the problem being faced here and why you can't just merely rely on the unemployment rate of 6.2% that I mentioned before because there are millions of people as well, not just who have, who have lost a job, but they've also just dropped out of that participation rate completely. There are people who lost their job and have just given up, which is horrible. And it's this stuff that you also need to look at when you consider this the impact of this pandemic to working people's lives. The other one I said I'd touch on is this figure we looked at last week for Australians, which was the personal savings ratio, which I mentioned in Australia is sitting around 12% or high 11s, but... And this is, a, this is a percentage or ratio that, that Aussies tuck away into savings as a proportion of disposable income. So not all income, but just a proportion of the disposable income. And I mentioned how that spiked up last year in Australia, generally due to, well, there's, there was tougher economic times, of course, which is a normal behavioral reaction. 
but also the government support in terms of both job seeker and job keeper. And in the US, you saw a pretty similarish trend in that that personal savings rate spiked up in April. It actually spiked up much higher than ours was. It spiked up to 33.7%. So quite a big jump there. That I mean, there's responses and stimulus packages were different though, but it did trend down and then jumped back up to 20.5% in January, which would have been due to that Trump package of the $600 payments, individual payments that was approved right at the end of the December. So with the new package that passed into law this week, expect that to trend back upward again. But that's some good news there from an economics perspective in that there's, there is some cash sitting around ready to be deployed into the economy and more so now that those further payments are coming down the line of the $1,400 checks for individuals being approved this week. So yeah, so that, there's some good news there. And one more, not so much economic related, but we'll, I'll point out lastly that besides that package being approved formally this week, the other thing that kind of helped drive some optimism in US markets was related to the COVID-19 vaccination program Biden conducted an address to the nation where he said that states, tribes, territories will be directed to make all American adults eligible for the vaccination come May 1 and also cited, I guess from a point of symbolism, but cited that the 4th of July being a bit of a marker point where some normality may come back to the US. Now, one of the things you would you should be watching for, and it's something on everyone's lips when the discussion is about covid is the spread of variants, um, specifically in the US, the one that has gained traction and being picked up more increasingly over the states is the UK variant. So that's something to keep an eye on as they roll out their vaccination program, which as it stands, this data is a couple of days old, but about 13.5% of the adult US population has been vaccinated and that comes straight from the CDC there. All right, that is a... A lot of macro there for you. So let's return home. Uh, one of the biggest pieces of news this week was a an Australian federal government announcement of a $1.2 billion assistance package, which is aimed at paying half the price of airfares for uh, the figure here is 800,000 domestic travellers. So in a total of $1.2 billion being spent there. So I guess there to incentivize and support domestic travel around Australia. It isn't to anywhere in Australia. There's, it's noted that there's specific destinations and it is mostly interstate travel. And also it is airfare. Uh, the support is to airfare costs. So it's not specific to say like an accommodate, like a hotel or, or something like that. I think in the last few days, it's also changed a little bit because there's been a bit of back and forth about which particular destinations have been chosen. I think so some extra cities have been chosen, like Darwin, for example, and Adelaide. Um, and maybe it will change again as I <laughs> after I record this, but the crux of it is that it's focused on interstate travel for the most part and focused on uh, subsidizing airline fees for traveling interstate. Now, the announcement of this did have a pretty material impact on the share prices of our big travel company stocks on the ASX. So Qantas closed the week up 3.9%, Webjet up 8.2%, Sydney Airport up 7.28% for the week. Corporate travel management was actually the best out of 
all the, the travel stocks in terms of percentage gain for the week. It was up 14.02%. Flight Center up 8.7% for the week. Even Sealink Travel, which has... Sealink Travel has been an absolute rocket of a share over the past 12 months. Uh, it was up around 6.35% this week alone. And if you're unfamiliar with who they are, Sealink Travel is... So they're a listed company on the ASX and they operate a bunch of tourism oriented ferry services around the country. They have a lot of different brands and names. So it's not just called Sealink wherever you go, but I think they also have some overseas assets as well. But the Sealink branded ones you'll see around states like Queensland, Northern Territory and Western Australia. They own other notable ferry brands like Captain Cook Cruises, Fraser Island Ferries, heaps of different ones, but... The, the, the ceiling tr- uh, share price is actually up over 200% already over the past 12 months. So, And that's kind of been around this narrative of, well, not just a narrative, they've there's been a support of people in Australia looking to domestic holidays because they can't actually you know, travel overseas, right? So that, that has helped that business. So yeah, across the board, a pretty noticeable bump in our travel stocks when that news did break this week. It's probably too early to say, what kind of material impact this package will have on those individual companies. I know some brokers out there were kind of skeptical on the actual material impact that this would have on, say, the revenue of a flight center or a webjet or, or, or how this would impact Sydney Airport, for example. So that remains to be seen, but that was certainly a big driver in those travel stocks and helped for some of them to actually be some of the best performers this week. Now, like I mentioned at the very top of the show, we're going to do a little bit of a stock feature. Um, This isn't advice or some kind of recommendation. I just enjoy exploring some of the, I guess, some of the smaller guys on the on the market, and maybe maybe some of the companies that are less household notable, like the some of the big ones we talked, like especially when we did those uh, we did those podcast episodes where we talked about some of the highlights from reporting season. We mostly focused on some of those big names like big names in the banking sector, consumer discretionary sector, like some of the retail names. But every now and again, it's good to check in with some of these interesting businesses like the ones I mentioned we've talked about, like Pushpays, Whisper is a really cool one. And Selfwealth is the one we're going to talk about today. And Selfwealth is a brokerage platform. So you might you might be completely aware of it because you might be listening to this and saying, well, yeah, that's what I use to actually invest in the market in. So you might be all over it. But you can actually invest in Wealth itself as a company. It's publicly listed. So like I mentioned at the top of the show, it is ASX ticker code SWF. Now, they've been around for a little bit, a few years now uh, as a platform to invest in. I actually think close to like five years now. One of their big, I guess, advertising points or selling points is their cost of trading. So normally, or historically with a lot of brokerage platforms, they generally do have a base fee that they start with for trades. Generally, if you're making a trade of only like $1,000 or a couple thousand dollars, you might pay anywhere between $10, maybe $15 at the moment, maybe maybe even $20 depending on the platform you're using. And then it kind of starts to go up from there. So Maybe if you're investing over ten thousand, or once you start investing over fifty or a hundred thousand, it can even become a percentage. What self wealth selling point to investors is is that the fee will not change. So it's it's nine dollars fifty as they advertise, 
and whether you're putting in 50 grand into the market or five grand into the market, it's going to be that $9.50 brokerage fee. And then they've extended that across to, because they're allowing now US trading, so access to the US markets. And they've extended that sticking point there in US dollars, so $9.50 for US trading. Now, because of that too, that has made them quite popular among younger investors or newer investors because their focus is very much on like a digital offering compared to some of the more traditional brokers out there. And they've also experienced a fair bit of success in the number of customers that they're onboarding, especially given the amount of younger people interested in investing over the last 12 months and interesting certain events like the GameStop saga that we spoke about uh, only a few weeks ago. Now, what was interesting to me about SelfWealth was going back a couple of weeks ago around mid-February, they gave their half-year update to the market and they had some great figures on, I guess, what some of this frenzy around things like GameStop has um, done for their business but also broadly sort of the last 12 months, how that has impacted their business as well because, like I said, there's just generally been a, a greater interest among younger individuals in the investing side of things. But as a, a bit of a, a tangible look on what their business or new customers that their business was bringing in, they note in their market update a few weeks ago that the average daily registrations to join SelfWealth increased from 240 per day in the December quarter. So that's average daily registrations, 240 a day. And then in the in January, it jumped up to 605 a day and then 855 a day in February. And then they also note that their record of daily registrations was 2,211, which was on the 29th of January, which was basically the peak of all the GameStop craziness. So... And now that they've added that that US functionality, they definitely would have had people jumping onto SelfWealth to try and join in on the, the GameStop trading frenzy. The amount of trade volume going through SelfWealth as a platform has also increased significantly. There's been certain spikes over the last 12 months, but going back to like January 2020, their trade volumes for a month were below 40,000. It is now much closer to, it's actually been as high as 150,000, but it's sitting around that sort of 140-ish thousand a month at the moment. So huge increase from doing closer to around the mid-30s in a month going back to just over a year ago. Now, it's worth stating, or I don't want to understate, not that they knew about the GameStop stuff, but it's the launch of their US platform is relatively recent. It's only over the last few months they've launched the ability to invest in the US market on their platform. But it's kind of come at such a good point because they were able to capitalize on that interest in and it's not it wasn't just GameStop. There was a there was a bunch of other companies that people were like AMC, like the cinema chain over in the US was another one. But the that kind of like frenzy of people looking to invest in the overseas markets, they kind of have got their platform ready in place at a very good moment for them. And something else that I noticed just from observing discussion online was people complimenting them for keeping trading ongoing throughout that period, whereas some platforms 
restricted trading on certain stocks like GameStop. There were platforms that kind of buckled under the pressure of the amount of people trying to apply for new accounts and people wanting to trade. Uh, one of the compliments I see about self wealth, and this is this is anecdotal. Let's just let's just make that clear at the moment. But the the ability for the platform to remain steady during that kind of period, because those kind of heightened trading periods, and this is just broadly speaking, they can put a lot of pressure on a brokerage company like this. The other thing that's been a really good positive indicator for self wealth is because their overall net position has been at a loss. But if you compare their the first half of financial year 20, where they recorded around a $1.45 million loss, they've actually cut that down significantly over the 12-month period, and that's down now to just over 400000 loss. That's a point that a lot of investors have been focused on too, their, their ability to cut that operating loss down very significantly. I think is close to around 70% across that 12-month period. Now, granted, that's, I'm sure, helped by the number of investors they've got on board, but that's a positive sign that they're able to, or they're increasing or speeding up the process which they're going to be able to turn to profitability. And it's most likely going to happen over the next six months. So that is uh, self-wealth, the ASX-listed brokerage and trading platform Again, you might be completely familiar with it if that's the one you use. If it's not one you use, maybe it's one worth checking out. Now, full disclosure, I don't actually use Selfwell, so um, there's no sort of like personal <laughs> bias here. Um, but they are, they've had a fantastic 12 months. Really, only 12 months ago, they were trading close to around 10 cents a share, and they'd come down because of the whole general market sell off um, due to COVID. Uh, they are now, well, they've been as high as. 82 cents a share over the past 12 months, but they're now sitting around 63 cents a share. So uh, if you've if you got into self-wealth around that period of time, around March last year, you could have uh, six times your money, your, your investment into this company. So now given the success they've had and the positivity around that brand, uh, you'd be watching and hoping that they can continue on that growth story, uh, move that that operating position into a positive, into a profitability. And that's certainly something I'll be watching for. Um, full, again, full disclosure, I don't own shares in Self-Wealth. It's just, just merely a little bit of a feature. They're definitely an interesting company to watch and someone that I've uh, added to my watch list to, to be checking out over the next 12 months. Well, that is it. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. This has been episode 49 the half price edition. Thanks for sitting through with the big macro stuff at the start of the episode. I enjoy checking in on that kind of broader picture stuff every now and again. If you have questions related to that, if you have questions related to markets or individual companies or just investing behavior in general, shoot them through. You can always do that at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But have a great rest of your week. My name is Dion. Thank you very much for tuning in and I'll see you for episode 50.